Welcome back to the Adventist Space Dermatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 87, Trial of Intravenous Immunoglobulin in Dermatomyositis, the Proderm Trial. So it's been a minute, but I'm back from my summer hiatus. It's been a very busy summer. I took on some new roles in um, education, and I've had a lot of research projects going on, but I am excited to be back and excited to share this trial with you. I think this is a pivotal step in the treatment of dermatomyositis, and although it was by no means a perfect trial, I think it was an incredibly convincing trial, and I'm excited to talk about it. So for background, we have all known that IVIG is a treatment for dermatomyositis. The list of therapies for which we have good data in dermatomyositis is shockingly low. And in general, I think that it's an area that you know, is clearly heavily immune-mediated and should be responsive to therapy. But we've done a relatively mediocre job of actually figuring out which therapies are options. And I am very grateful for the group that ran this trial because I think it's an important step in the right direction. Now, as I said, this trial investigated the use of intravenous immunoglobulin, which I'm going to call IVIG from now on, which, to be totally honest, I don't think we know how this works. Every time I've heard someone explain it, they always talk about how there's magnets in your bloodstream, and then we put more magnets in there, and then they precipitate out, whatever that means. I don't know if I believe any of that. There's also a lot of talk about B-cell signaling, which seems more plausible to me. But we did run the RIM trial in myositis, and it was quite a big failure. So I I just don't know how this works. But I I think that it does, and I'm glad that it exists, and especially in the wake of this trial. So Proderm was a phase three, double-blind, parallel group, randomized, placebo-controlled trial uh, uh, carried out in 36 countries in Europe and North America. So a pretty large um, trial um, that wound up not having quite as many people, is rather rare, but uh, a very big undertaking. Patients had to be adults, so 18 to 80 years, and they had to have probable active dermatomyositis as defined by the Bohan and Peter criteria. Now, that is a throwback. The Bohan and Peter criteria was published in, I believe, the New England Journal of Medicine in 1975, which is a long time ago. When I said that I like to complain about dermatomyositis or the field of myositis and how little progress we've made, the fact that we are still using those criteria uh, says quite a bit. Now, in fairness, we do have new criteria that were rolled out in 2017. Um, that was after this trial began, and that's one reason that they weren't used. The other reason is that I don't really mind because I think the new criteria were dead on arrival. The new criteria were incredibly cumbersome and complex. There's small numbers for various metrics. No one who is a practicing clinician would ever use them. And on top of all that, the performance characteristics weren't very good. I didn't think that they were a huge step forward in anything other than trial design, but this trial shows that you don't really need them anyway. The last problem with the new criteria is that they maintained the historical distinction between dermatomyositis and polymyositis, and I have been a vocal critic of the very existence of polymyositis. (laughs) You can look at my Twitter and some of the various things that I've shared about that. But in short, I don't think polymyositis exists, and I think ensconcing it as an actual thing in the 2017 guidelines was uh, quite silly. But that is neither here nor there. The Bohan and Peter criteria are actually quite good. They require um, some combination of proximal and symmetrical muscle weakness, makes sense, of the pelvic and scapular girdle, anterior flexion of the neck, um, which progressed slowly with or without dysphagia. I mean, that's dead on. They require some elevation of muscle enzymes, so CK, AST, LDH, et cetera. Great. They include EMG criteria. Now, I kind of throw in MRI um, as well um, in the modern era because I think that would count, but their EMG criteria are pretty accurate. Short, small motor units, fibrillation, Um, insertional irritability, the kind of things that we still look for. 
and then a muscle biopsy they included, which, you know, in this trial, I didn't do too much of it, but reasonable. Now, the Bohannon Peter criteria first created this whole polymyositis, dermatomyositis distinction. You know, if you had a rash, you were dermato. If you didn't, you were poly. Fine. I think that we've made a lot of progress since then. And, you know, in some future episode, I'll talk about where I think we actually are with all this. But for now, they use the Bohannon Peter criteria, which I actually think is quite reasonable. Now, that was somewhat straightforward. I think that the other eligibility criteria are not straightforward at all. So you could have gotten in whether or not you received glucocorticoids. Pretty much everyone had. So that wound up not being terribly impactful. Um, But then you had to have either no response to that, or you had to have an adverse event, or you had to be receiving treatment with a maximum of two immunosuppressive drugs, or you could have both of those things. So essentially, this wasn't on new onset people. This is on people who had either not responded adequately to glucocorticoids or had gotten a lot of therapies. In fact, um, to get into the trial, having been on other immunosuppression drugs, such as methotrexate, azathioprine, MMF, et cetera, um, you had to have been initiated on these drugs at least three months before enrollment, and you had to be on a stable dose at least four weeks before enrollment. So this wasn't really a trial of acute onset um, dermatomyositis. Rather, it was a trial of people who had gotten some therapies, hadn't responded very well, or had had adverse events, had required additional therapies, and then hadn't really been able to taper off steroids. So that's kind of the group in my head that you're imagining. Now, nobody was allowed to have gotten biologic agents which or prior IVIG, which, I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, none of the biologics have great data. As I said earlier, rituximab was quite a failure here. So I, I think that's fine. Disease activity was assessed using uh, the MMT-8, which is the Manual Muscle Test 8. Uh, MMT-8 is actually a pretty reasonable approach to uh, characterizing disease in myositis. You score a number of different domains on the right and the left. The score is out of 0 to 10, with 10 being um, having normal strength uh, and 0 having no strength in that area. So it's deltoid, biceps, glutes, quads, wrists, ankles, uh, and then an axial domain. So uh, someone who has normal strength would be 150. Someone who had no strength would be 0. To get this trial, you had to have a score of less than 142. So some deficits in some areas could be a lot in one area or a little in a couple, which is more likely. They also tracked a number of other measures, including the uh, patient global, physician global, hack DI, which you know I love these. I'm a big fan of patient report outcome measures. But there was another reason that they included these, and that's because the primary endpoint of this trial was an improvement on the total improvement score. So what is a total improvement score? Now, it's kind of like one of these combined ACR20 measures, similar to that. The TIS includes um, the MMT8, which we just discussed. It also includes physician global, patient global, hack extramuscular activity, and muscle enzyme levels. This is one of those numbers that's um, required by the FDA in trials of myositis, so it makes sense to include it. I think it's reasonable. Um, it also makes for a somewhat opaque trial because you're not entirely sure what drove it, uh, but yeah, I, I think that it makes sense and was a reasonable outcome measure for this trial. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to either receive IVIG or Octagam at a dose of 2 grams per kilogram of body, uh, body weight um, or placebo. Uh, every four weeks. That is pretty much in line with my practice. I tend to give two grams of IVIG up front, uh, and I tend to give it every four weeks, at least over the six mo- first six months of therapy. So well in line with what I'm doing. There was a lot of interest in uh, thromboembolism associated with IVIG infusions. I'll tell you that I have only seen this once, and I'm not totally convinced it was related to the IVIG. I think it's a somewhat rare uh, complication, but they calculated well scores and really went after it. Um, Ultimately, didn't find any, but kind of interesting. 
The trial itself was ultimately powered only to assess the primary endpoint, which I think is reasonable, help them keep the number of required patients to enroll down. And, uh, you know, I like clean trials that answer a single, single question. Analysis was intention to treat. <laughs> they had some really garbagey language. In general, missing data were not imputed with a few exceptions. I think that's kind of sloppy. They need to talk to their medical writer about that one. Uh, but <laughs> overall, the statistical plan was pretty reasonable. So getting into the results, uh, 90, 126 patients were screened, 95 were enrolled, half went into each group, 96 completed the 16-week um, double-blind randomized portion of the trial, which is the one that I care the most about. Who are these pe people? Well, uh, they were around 52 years in age, the majority, 75% were female, the majority, 92% were white. Don't love that. Really wish we had better representation in this trial. Uh, all of them had symmetric proximal weakness. All of them had typical skin rash of dermatomyositis. And almost all of them, 92% had elevated CKs. Half had a muscle biopsy. Half had EMG findings. There wasn't a lot on how many got um, MRIs as a means to be diagnosed. Um, that wasn't part of the Bohan and Peter criteria, so I can see why it wouldn't be. But I suspect that's why some of these other workups felt somewhat incomplete. Only 71% of people met the BNH criteria, but I mean, again, that's fine. I think, I think that this was a pretty reasonable approximation of dermatomyositis. Now, as I said, the, the glucocorticoids weren't required. You could get in if you had a couple of conventional synthetic DMARDs, but 88% of patients who entered the trial were on systemic glucocorticoids. 68% were on non-glucocorticoid medications. And, you know, there's kind of this weird thing that they did where they required people to stay at the dose of glucocorticoids that they're on when they entered the trial. We've seen all kinds of glucocorticoid tapering behaviors in recent published trials. Some of them, I think, somewhat nefarious, where we're trying to get people off glucocorticoids really quickly. Uh, you know, in this trial, I honestly would have liked to have seen that. I mean, I start IVIG with the explicit goal of getting people off glucocorticoids. In my opinion, at least, I think just about everyone with myositis develops some degree of steroid myopathy. And in people who do not have a whole lot of rubber to burn, the steroid myopathy can be very, very damaging. And so I, I think that I'm kind of on the far end of the spectrum with tapering glucocorticoids quickly. And there's just no way that I would leave someone on glucocorticoids for 16 weeks at some dose north of 10 milligrams um, while I futzed around with other therapies. So this doesn't totally mirror my practice. Now, I mean, if this were to have any effect, I think it would bias toward no effect of the treatment. So, I mean, if anything, I think had we tapered glucocorticoids, you probably would have seen more flares and more flares specifically in the placebo group. So, you know, I don't think this invalidates the results of the trial, but I never love it when trials don't reflect my own practice. All that said, what did we find? Well, at week 16, um, the primary endpoint, which was a response of at least minimal improvement on the TIS, so greater than or equal to 20 on that score, was observed in 79% of the patients in the treatment group and 44% of patients in the placebo group. That is a 35% absolute difference in the primary endpoint, which is astonishing. Think about that. One in three patients treated with IVIG had a um, minimal improvement that they wouldn't have had otherwise if you hadn't treated them. I think that's a huge result. There are not that many therapies in medicine that work that well. I'm going to be talking about uh, vitamin D in a future episode of the podcast, and it works terribly. It is essentially worthless. An absolute improvement of 35% is the kind of thing that you can really feel and see as a clinician. And it's part of why I've been doing IVIG upfront for my patients for quite some time now. I think the preliminary data from this trial was pretty convincing. I think the other data in this area is pretty convincing. And I think that this trial very much uh, validates that approach. 
They had a number of uh, primary and secondary efficacy endpoints. Uh, bear in mind that these, the trial wasn't really powered to assess any of these, but so one, a couple of the interesting ones that are worth noting. So for a secondary endpoint, a TIS greater than 60, so that's like a big improvement, uh, 32% in the IVIG group, 8% in the placebo. That, that's a big deal. So if you give this, one in four people will have a very large change in how they're doing. That, that, that matters quite a bit to me. They looked at some of the individual components of the TIS, which I appreciate. Uh, I thought this was an overall pretty well-reported trial. They weren't didn't feel like didn't get the impression they were trying to sweep anything under the rug. Um, you know, from baseline to week sixteen, um, the change in the MMT itself was fourteen points versus three points in the placebo group, so an eight-point difference. Uh, I think that's pretty pretty relevant and useful. Um, the physician global and patient global, there were differences between them. Uh, they weren't huge. Um, I'd love to see future publications kind of suss that out more, but I appreciate the authors for reporting them up front. Uh, we have a, a paper that we're going to be submitting in the very near future discussing delays in reporting to of PROs, and I will tell you, it is not pretty. But these authors did a nice job, so good work uh, by them. The other subgroup analysis that's worth discussing is that they, they did stratify patients um, uh, on enrollment into group that had mild disease activity, moderate activity, and severe disease activity, which is answering an interesting question, right? You're saying, you know, is this better for people who are a little sick or really sick? And at the end of the day, it looked like it worked in all of them. Pretty big improvements across the board. Maybe perhaps a larger magnitude of difference in, among people who had severe disease activity. But that's like somewhat typical because there's more room to improve in that group. And so I, I don't know. It looked like it worked in everybody. Now, as far as adverse events are concerned, there, there, there was a, a higher rate of adverse events in the IVIG group, 58% versus 23%. I don't know how much to worry about these. There was all this con concern about VTE, which, like I said earlier, I've, I've never been terribly worried about that. And there, there were no VTEs in the first uh, four months of therapy. There was one in the uh, open label extension phase. I don't totally know what to make of that. I guess I guess that's a concern. But you know, in a group that's sick and probably not mobile, one one person out of eighty some getting a a DVT may be close to the baseline rate. So I don't know. I don't know how worried I am about that. Uh, there were, was a fair bit of headache, which is the thing that I find most limiting. I, I do a lot of work trying to <laughs> prevent headaches, and then pyrexia and nausea associated with the infusions. That that all makes sense and is kind of in line with what we would expect. There are a lot of other analyses that you could dig into if you so choose, but at the end of the day, I think this is what we have. Uh, the IVIG in this randomized controlled trial of patients with dermatomyositis seemed to work quite well. A uh, large, significant benefit over the 16-week um, uh, randomized period. There was an open-label extension phase, which I typically don't care about very much. And in that phase, the group that was initially in the placebo group seemed to catch up, so that's promising, at least. Uh, it doesn't look like we harmed anyone in this trial. But... Uh, I think that at this point, IVIG should be the standard of care for dermatomyositis. I've been using it in that fashion for quite some time, and I found these results very validating. Now, a couple caveats. The first one is that I think the inclusion criteria for this trial were a little bit strange. I would have designed this trial upfront and given people IVIG upfront along with a protocolized taper, and I would have had that taper be a factorial design like in Pexavas, where one group gets a very rapid taper and one group gets a more standard taper. I personally believe that IVIG upfront with a fast taper is much better for these patients. I don't think that people need this prolonged course of steroids in a lot of cases. And I think a lot of the time people get prolonged courses of steroids and six months into therapy, their main problem is actually steroid-related myopathy. I have no proof for that, but that is my own impression. And I don't think that this trial exactly mirrored my uh, clinical practice. 
Second problem with this trial is that we didn't include a lot of diseases that I really wish we had data in. So those would be, for one, the necrotizing myopathies, like SRP my myopathy. Um, I'd be curious to see what this looked like in HMG-CoA myopathy as well. Theoretically, patients with those myopathies weren't supposed to be part of this trial. There was an exclusion for other uh, brands of inflammatory myositis. But when you look at the supplement, uh, you know, this is a trial of 84 people, and about 20 people had some kind of antibody that I think would suggest a disease other than simple dermatomyositis. There are 15 with an antisynthetase syndrome. Uh, there's one MDA5 person, four with TIF1 gamma, uh, five with SRP myositis. Um, there are a bunch of connective tissue disease antibodies as well. Those are kind of difficult to interpret, but I'm not even sure that they didn't include those people, even though they meant not to. I, I would love to see a trial power to look at necrotized myopathies in particular. I think that I've been using IVIG and rituximab up front for those people. I'm not sure if that's the correct choice, but I think that's overall somewhat supported by the available literature. But, you know, I, I think that they accidentally included some of those people. I would have liked to have seen it done more intentionally. So I guess a couple critiques. You know, I think this was a missed opportunity to investigate the role of corticosteroids in this disease. I think that the inclusion criteria were a little bit weird, and we hit people at kind of a strange time in their disease course. We could have probably had more benefit if we came in up front. But you know, when the rubber meets the road, I mean, this is a great trial. This is a huge step forward for patients with myositis. Hopefully a big step forward for getting this drug, since it is now FDA approved for this indication, at least in the United States. I'm not sure about elsewhere. And uh, I think that this is a, a, the standard of care, in my opinion. If you have a patient with dermatomyositis and probably some of the other ones as well, I think you should be giving IVIG. Personally, I think you should go upfront, not after the failure of other therapies. And personally, I think you should be tapering steroids a lot quicker. But the evidence-based answer here is that IVIG for dermatomyositis officially has the best data of any therapy we have to date. So that's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Excited to be back. In the coming weeks, I'll be releasing some more episodes, and I hope you enjoy them as well. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.